Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera to this arena public interview with the author of the novels A Long, Long Way, The Secret Scripture, and Days Without End. He also wrote the internationally acclaimed play The Steward of Christendom. He's speaking to us tonight on the occasion of the publication of his new book, Old God's Time. Please welcome Sebastian Barry. Well, you're welcome anyway. My, my old Dunleary friends. My well, young Dunleary friends. Well, I'm just wondering about my, my old um, Dunleary friends, because given, given having read Old God's Time, I'm kind of thinking, should we be welcoming you, or should you, in fact, be welcoming, um, welcoming us to the location in some ways? Because everything that happens, or a lot of what happens yeah. in Old God's Time, happens within, within what would have been two or three or five K during the pandemic of this particular spot? It's the whole bay, really. I mean, it, it, the place where you tramp about as a kid uh, never leaves you. And if people ask you where you're from, maybe that's where you're from. The calf returns to where it got the milk, as it were. And as kids, when, you know, I, I was, we, we, we lived on Longford Terrace in Monkstown, but I was you know, part of a lovely gang of kids. And before girlfriends broke it all up. Um, but we used to traipse around everywhere and you know, get into all sorts of terrible mischief. I couldn't, some of it's so criminal I couldn't even confess it now because they might still come for me. But uh, you know, it, was, it was a godsend because uh, I lived quite an isolated life you know, with my parents. And to find these other wild spirits, I just literally climb out the window to be with them. You know, and I, I was able to deal with the harsh words said to me when I'd come home. But we traipsed all around here. Uh, Mon- I mean, Monkstown Pier, Dunleary Pier. These were very important places. And sometimes we would go mad and get the train to Bray <laughs> and play the penny slots. Wow. Yeah, I know. That was the type of madness that was going on in, in the young Sebastian <laughs> well, we, Barry. We were only 12, but, you know, we were, we were trying. <laughs> you mentioned isolation there, your own splendid isolation, as you put it, mm. when, when in, the, in the company of your own parents. Yeah. This Tom Kettle chap that you have, as he, he really is, he, he's the person who's bringing us through mm. old God's time. Isolation is putting it mildly in, in his case. Give us a sense of, of where he's at as, as the novel starts out. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a, he's, he's a retired person, which is always, a, except for a writer who can't retire, you know, it's traditionally quite a shock. But in his case, he's been quite content to spend nine months before the book starts in his annex flat in Queenstown Castle, because we don't know this at the beginning of the book, at the end of the book, we have a much better idea. He has some serious stuff to deal with and to process. And, you know, his victory occurs really at the beginning of the book where he has been able to sit in his wicker chair and look out to sea and smoke his cigarillo and not mind so much. You know, and it is a wonderful attribute that he's been able to do that when you read the book and realize what he's been through. Mm. Um, this man, and I was almost a libel on, on real people, luckily it's a fiction, but uh, when I was a little boy, when I was the little boy in the turret flat in Queenstown Castle, when we'd just come back from London, 
and my mother and my sister and myself. My father stayed behind to continue working for nine months, in fact. Um, this funny little place that the landlord had thrown up, possibly for a mother or a, a relative, uh, I was intrigued by it as a little fellow, and I looked in, I was probably six or seven, uh, for 20 seconds saw this rather large man sitting in the wicker chair, smoking the cigarette. He didn't even turn his head, I, didn't, I don't think I ever spoke to him. They may have said he was a retired policeman, I don't know. But for some reason he stuck with me for 60 years and was able, and the book is written in the third person, but as you say, we're very soon wholly within the atmosphere and the strange phenomena of his life. It doesn't stray outside that much. A, a character and a book that, that stays with you for 60 years. I mean, yeah. he, he says at one point about retirement that the whole, uh, the whole point of retirement, uh, of existence, in fact, he yeah. says, is to be stationary, to be happy, and useless. Yeah. Now, that doesn't sound like the most promising character for a novel. No. But, so you, but did you see something, even at six, that you went, what, oh, what, who's well, I, what's going on? Well, you wonder who he is. And because the six-year-old, all your research is done at that sort of age for, for being a novelist. Of course, you don't know that. But you have this passionate regard for living creatures, whether they're dogs or people. And he just took my fancy. He took my eye as a child. And who could that be? I mean, I was, I was, I was helplessly in love with my mother and my sister, and my great aunt Annie that I wrote about, and Annie Don, and and all anyone had, and my grandfather's, of course, at that home. And indeed, he has a brief appearance. My maternal grandfather in the book as, as the mysterious man who keeps going up and down the stairs. But in fact, if, if you know, an astute reader will realise that that man has his own novel called The Temporary Gentleman, but in this book he's just got a bit part, so I hope he's not too cross about it. But I loved, I loved those people, and I was willing to find more people to love. And my, you know, my, they were slightly isolationist in their attitudes, and we didn't have much contact with family. So it behoved me. It was necessary for me to try and gather a few more. So I probably thought he was a likely candidate for my collection of loved people. Just <laughs> <laughs> sound a bit mad. but there You, you strayed wildly outside the family, which is something that you haven't done too often in the writing of the plays or the books. Well, on Blueberry Hill, which was yeah, most magically produced on this very stage... Um, with Niall Buggy and David Ganley, directed by Jim Cullerton. That wasn't quite family, hmm. except it was full of, for instance, the ex-priest in that play, most of his childhood stuff was mine. So I'm giving them, but, it, but giving that to him, because I had nothing else to give. Um, but, and Winona in A Thousand Moons is a kind of invented ancient daughter, you know. Yeah, she's, she's a Lakota she's a follow person. follow-on from Days Without End. Exactly. She's the the but, adopted daughter of the two men there. Exactly. But at the same time, you know, Thomas McNulty had no name when my grandfather, not far from here, in that house in Longford Terrace, uh, as when we shared a bed together uh, in the cold of an Irish winter, in, I think in an oil strike, if you remember, in the 70s, freezing to death in a big old house, so I'd climb in beside him. As I have tried to inform the world a number of times, he, he'd give a mighty fart in the bed and he'd say, keep the heat in, you know, all those things. But he, but he told me briefly about, he said his uncle, 
or maybe his great uncle, but his uncle probably had been at the Indian Wars. Because I'd been going up to the Adelphi Cinema, if you remember that, uh, every Saturday for the, for the one and twopenny seats, I think they were, or maybe ninepence for the kids. And for some reason, the ushers herded us all, all the children of the district, into these, crammed us into one little side, tiny little side in the balcony of the, of the cinema to watch the cowboy films. Mm. So he, he knew I was already an expert, and, and he, he probably thought, you know, I would know what he was talking about. But otherwise, Tom McNulty has no existence until my mad brain thinks about that for 50 or 60 years. So, uh, similar, you know, it, they don't come from recognizably sane origins, these things. Mm. It's just a matter of how much attention you've paid to it in, in that interior part of your, your brain. Thomas McNulty didn't exist and therefore had no name. Tom Kettle, now that, there's a name well, that you chose for your protagonist. I'm very grateful to Thomas Kettle, who wrote, um, as you know, was a very uh, interesting figure in his day, Tom Kettle, the poet. He was also the, great, the best talker of his day, which is not something we say about people anymore, and wrote essays. He was really a very brilliant person and died on the Western Front in a British uniform. And a few weeks before he died, he wrote the famous poem, To My Daughter Betty, the last two lines of which are, Know that we fools, now with the foolish dead, died not for crown nor king nor emperor, but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed, and for the secret scripture of the poor. And when I wrote A Long, Long Way, which is about an Irish soldier of the First World War, I was tempted to call it the secret scripture, but I thought it was a bit grand for Willie. But then when I got to the next book about Roseanne um, being locked away in the asylum and all the rest of it, and she is writing her, her private diary and hiding it under the floorboards. So therefore, the secret scripture was, was a beautiful gift from Thomas Kettle up the decades to me. And is this a kind of a pet? Did you feel you owed him a little well, I a big appearance? Well, if I thought I called him Tom Kettle, I'd know him a bit better. You know, because I already had shaken hands with him over the trenches <laughs> oh, right. and over the years, yeah. This, this Tom Kettle... Actually, before we get to the background, I suppose yeah. we need to hear a bit of it, because you can't talk about Tom Kettle before we, until we talk about June, yeah. his wife. Yeah. You have a reading for us, which is very it. early on yeah. in their... Is it their very first... No, it's not their first meeting. It's a very early on in their, in their courtship. Anyway, it's the first thing he's telling us about her, really. And um, I'll get up and... Yeah, you're going to do it at, at the big mic. Yes. So this is, this is a section from Old God's Time... Sebastian Barry reading. I, I don't know about you, but um, the first person you love, uh, it, it is a particular thing. I mean, sometimes we downgrade it and say it's puppy love and all the rest of it, but actually the, the extent of the heartbeat and the complete obsession is immense uh, between very young people when they fall in love. And... Um, the thing for Tom was that when he met this particular girl, June, uh, you know, as if he never got over it. He married her. I mean, they had things in common, um, which is often the case with people who find each other. You might even discover only later that you have even traumas in common in your childhood that somehow allowed you to recognize each other. 
But in the making of the book, which obviously has its black darknesses, his love for June and his descriptions of June somehow get, kept me going as if they were the song of the book. Nevertheless, um, as, when he talks about her here just for a page or two, she is telling him, has been telling him what has happened to her as a little girl when she's been in, uh, in the care of the nuns. The care of the nuns would, might be in inverted commas there. Um, and he has had a similar experience uh, with the brothers in a, in a home for boys. Um, so their love, though, is not in a sense, it's endangered by their experiences, but also it's, it's the thing that th those experiences are the things that have created the power of their love. And he's just talking about her. And the reason I want to read it is because it refers to, or does it refer to? Oh, I'm not sure it does. Anyway, I'll, I'll read it. She says, I don't know who I am. There's just no one for you to marry. At this point, he didn't believe he had mentioned marriage. But she spoke so sadly, so precisely, and so bravely that he certainly didn't say so. And he immediately thought, by God, if she wants to marry, I will do that. Had it even entered his stupid head? It must have. Tom couldn't remember. She sat on in her denim glory, the jeans like a second skin, or a skin she could shed with that gathered, collected set to her shoulders. She had a little purse with a heart on it, like the knickers. More of a wallet, maybe. It was then she extracted the sacred photo and told him the story of how she had won it, how she had stolen it from oblivion. Those damnable nuns. But then, by her courage, she released him to tell her his story, his own sorry, bloody tale of woe. All the dead mothers. He was gabbling, excited. He was aware at the back of his head of his lousy pay, detective though he was. That wasn't the point. They'd managed they would. And who the hell would they have at such a ceremony? That wasn't the point either. Nothing in the normal way seemed to be because he knew she wasn't finished. There was something further to say. He could see it as if it were a raven sitting on her shoulder. They had come to a huge decision about their lives almost by happenstance, by things benignly conspiring. But she wasn't finished. The shoulders were still set. She wasn't finished because she never would be. Quoth the raven, never would be. Here was now a light here removed from that reverberating day and all the things that followed, all the hard things, the happy things, the happier things. The usual fog cleared a moment from his mind. The small hours were refining him down like a rough whiskey. What would God want to take from his story, he wondered. St. Bloody Peter at his gate. What was important in all this? His life, his life like any other life? He thought suddenly of all the detectives on the earth and all the detectives that had been on the earth. Would it be hundreds of thousands? Would they be herded into the detective enclosure and made 
to race against each other like horses. All the detectives, the violent crimes, the rapes, the murders, the con jobs, the robberies, the frauds, the very water spout, the waterfall, the great flood of crimes in human stories, the hubbub, the hubbub that had so concerned them all, like the waterfall in power skirt pouring down, pouring down, and all these men in all the languages of the world, all the races, all the forces trying to peer in, to weigh up, to come to conclusions, to strike it lucky, copper break, to squeak a case through by the skin of its teeth. What was their worth, their own weight? And what was at the heart of it? His life, his little life. The fog edged away from the shore of himself. The sea opened like the stage in a theatre. The helpful sun burned in its element. There was a truth told to him, a truth in his curious age, in his palpable decay, that there at the heart of it, there at the heart of it, forever and always, was June, Winnie and Joseph and June, but June... Sebastian Barry reading from his new novel Old God Simon. You're listening to a public interview live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary on the occasion of the publication of Sebastian's new novel. And June is June is, is becomes the wife of Tom Kettle. That's not a spoiler no. <laughs> to, to say that. No. And, and you mentioned too. It's a joyous fact. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the Winnie and Joseph, who are the two children who are in the book in, in different ways as as well. Um a family and functional family yes. is at the very, well, is at one very heart of this novel because it has a couple of hearts, some of them darker than others. Mm. But functional family is, is one of the brighter parts. I think it's the victory that these two people who have endured what so many people had to endure in that Ireland, I don't know, maybe there's scrapes of it still, that they have been able to find each other and at least make the attempt, uh, in particular not to pass on the things that have happened to them and to love their babies in the ordinary way that people do and read the stories to them and be true to them and stand by them and try to protect them. They've done all those things. and uh, But the fact is, I mean... One of the, you know, the darker hearts, as you say, almost the bloodless heart through which nothing moves, is what happened to them. And, you know, if there's any secret purpose in the mathematics of the book, in the strange calculus of the book, it's to insist in a way that the problem with what we call almost cloakingly clerical abuse or abuse or neglectful nuns, or the rest of it, is that there's nothing really in the statute books, in my, to my mind, that properly covers the crime. Because to me, just having been so bothered and obliterated, obliterated by it over the years and the contemplation of it, to me, it is, in, in effect, to, in my legal mind, either a murder or attempted murder because what you do to the child 
is you take away entirely the road that was before them in their lives. Um, you rescind their future. You cancel their future. And oftentimes, and we would never even hear about it, um, people who have suffered in that way eventually uh, end up by exiting life well before their time. As and, and otherwise, it, it sort of destroys time. It's a murder of time. It's a murder of the person's spirit. And the person can only struggle to reconstruct themselves. And there's no, you know, obviously there's no help for it. But the judiciary of the day, far from being the people who would come to the assistance of victims, were actually people, if they will forgive me for saying so, deeply complicit in the creation of victims, because they were the people sending uh, children to these places. And I still get a strange odor from all these uh, redress boards of a fundamental lack of understanding of the nature of the crime. There's still a tendency, it seems to me, as people are tortured to try and repeat what happened to them, to prove what happened to them, to get a few shillings, government shillings, whatever it is, that they don't realize that what they're talking about is, in effect, murder. And, and all those men and all those women with father and sister in front of their names uh, who did these things, to me, are you know, guilty of the most ferocious crimes uh, that are not... Um, mirrored in phrases like child abuse or abuse this child. And in the recent times when we saw incredibly brave men, just in this particular instance, um, who had been through the Black Rock College and Willow Park and all the rest of it, um, and, and, realize, and then you see the number of 74 priests coming up uh, over the decades. Uh, and as recent as 2015, one of these amazing men who was this seems to be a psychologist in his work, saying that when he finally, when it finally sort of imploded in his mind and he was desperate to get some assistance, he was told by the Spirit and Fathers that they would beggar him before, uh, bring him to the high court to just beggar him before they would give him money. And so there's a, still a sense that they don't quite get it. They don't get it at all. So I, I, that's, what, that's what's concerned me as a human being. You know, as, as a fellow citizen of this country, that that we all belong in, that these things exist, and yet are sometimes, I think, called by the wrong names. And so the book is trying to sing that song. I mean, bloodless heart, but to put a song on that to show that you know, there, there is no redemption. My wife, does, Ali, does a lot of work with the Holocaust Awareness Ireland, and it's, of course the Holocaust is a completely different issue, but still there is the sense that people are always looking for the redemptive tone, note the thing that came good, the forgiveness. But this just doesn't apply in certain crimes. And this is their fate in this book. And this is what they have to deal with. And you talk about singing that song. Uh, and as is your skill and ability across all of your work, there is this wonderful lyricism that's always spoken of, the, the beauty of your prose. But when it comes to the particular crimes that are perpetrated against the young Tom and the young June, mm. in particular the young June, she gets to a point where she can speak about it. Yeah. And she says, she kind of stops herself and says, no, I'm not going to stop myself. I'm going to tell you everything. Mm. And she tells us mm. everything that happened mm -hmm. in graphic 
and horrific detail. Mm. How important was it that that detail was was given for you, that it was part of the song? It was so important to me that, you know, I'm I'm literally trembling to to be asked the question because... um, these these fellow citizens citizens of ours who have had these experiences carry imagery in their brains that are constantly seeking to destroy them, you know, minute to minute. And one of the things I found most difficult, actually in another context, in trying to tell somebody about something like this, is another area of my life, was that I would tell this person the necessary detail for them to have the necessary reaction to what I was saying. But when I went back to the same person maybe six months later and referred to it as if you could refer to this imagery and they would know what I was talking about because we had a common currency of remembrance, they would have completely erased this memory and I had to reinstate it, which was very unpleasant and very difficult. So I thought it was my responsibility responsibility in the book to be very very clear written down clear which is a different thing and also I thought and I I know that one of the graces of the Irish people generally especially in recent decades is they're willing to, to go a long way towards victims because they know that in their day these people were also socially uh, removed from sight um, but if you give that, that people, I hoped, and I think I, I pray I'm right, and I do believe I am, would be willing to carry some of that imagery in their minds that wasn't their experience, but would allow them gracefully, exuberantly, r- f- freeingly refer to that imagery in their mind when they were thinking about victims, and to have that empathy created by having been willing to take on details that no one wants to hear. But what is that when they have been put into your head by a perpetrator? It's a sort of idea of, of, of sort of loving, proper civil love, where we, we will listen. And do you remember, Sean, you know, some years ago, when the men who'd been in industrial schools were on the radio, on RT radio, as if they had found the first place they could actually speak of their ordeal. And they spoke with angelic tongues about terrible, terrible things. And even though some of those men recently who'd been through this best school, the best school in Ireland, the Eton of Ireland, giving these details in the newspaper that to read them burns into, you, into the f- flesh of your brain. But, peop- but they needed to, you to have those details because then you could understand. Then, then, then you could come to their kind of spiritual assistance. These words that I'm using, of course, that w- used to be owned by mm. the priesthood uh, and the people you know, ostensibly religious... But I think in Ireland we've realized in the last few decades that we've had to recreate our own sense 
of what is important in our lives and not to be receiving in instructions by people, by a group of people, for instance, a huge proportion of which, an astonishing percentage of which have been abusers. Why would we do that? I think we'll, we'll, we'll set the novel aside for a minute because mm-hmm. there's a lot to, a lot to process mm-hmm. in, in the midst of what you said there. Mm-hmm. And music might might help us. Derry Farrell. One Jerry of the Farrell. great, great musicians of art. Yeah, I, I know. I'm so thrilled. He's you were delighted when, when we <gasps> said that he was I coming. I couldn't believe it. I thought you'd been sort of reading my mind. <laughs> I've had access to my mind. Because I, you know, I was felling a tree last year and I just played his music to get me through the terror of felling the tree. You can't give higher praise than that. Yeah. <laughs> and there was one particular song, I think, that was on your mind as well, wasn't there? My Name It Is Pat Rainey. My Name It Is Pat Incredible. Rainey. All these mink hair ballads that are just most perfect things. Well, look, we'll, we'll get Derry to, to come on to the stage uh, with us now. Derry, in fact, was releasing his fourth album this week. It's called The Wedding Above and Glen Cree, which maybe was a wedding you were asked <laughs> at some point. And, and uh, we, 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 we're going to listen to Pat Rainey from Derry and Friends now. For me name is Pat Rainey, I'm a travelling man And I'll mend your own pots or I'll make you a can I'm prince among nomads, I'm king of me clan Fall the doll 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 day Oh fall the doll 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 Rainey, the name of the song from Derry Farler and alongside Derry, Robbie Walsh on Byron, Mark Redmond on Pipes. We'll be back with more live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary after this break. And welcome back to the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary and this public interview with Sebastian Barry on the occasion of the publication of his new novel, Old God's Time. Um, Sebastian, uh, to pick up on some of the themes that we were touching on uh, before the before the break and before we heard Derry sing that wonderful... And what an honour to sing uh, near that music. Yeah, beautiful. It's one of the yeah. nicest things that ever happened to me in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I was so shocked to turn around and see it. <laughs> but it is... It, it always is wonderful to have live music like that and great that, that Jerry could be, could be here with us for that this evening. You know, the, one of the things that propels the novel into action, we've, we've touched that Tom Kettle is this retired guard, that June is his wife, and he keeps referring back to her, there are two children there. And as the novel progresses, even though this is a beautiful, loving family, the wheels come off, and the boy do the wheels come off. They come off very badly. Pretty much occasioned are started with the visit of two current day Gardaí, yeah. yeah, very close to the beginning of the novel. Yeah. They come to visit. Um, they come to visit Tom Kettle. That moment in the writing of a novel. Here come two boys up to the door. They're not coming with Teddy's ice cream. Let's face it. No, although. Lovely if they had Teddy's ice cream. I mean, that's been going since the 60s, as you know. No, but of course, Tom being Tom loves those young detectives coming, you know, younger colleagues. Mm. He's only been out of the force nine months, and he does vaguely remember them in the way you, you might as an older person remember younger people. But 
And even though they are going to undo him, not intending to, but in some way, yes, in some way he realizes possibly you know, there's a sort of suspicion in them that's not comfortable, comfortable for him as a, as a policeman, a fellow policeman. There's something about it that he doesn't, that isn't giving him joy. But what I did admire about Tom, because I had no idea how any of this book was going to unfold when I was writing it, but what I did like about Tom was how much he admires these young guys coming in. And he, he thinks of them as young, of course, you know, one of them is 40, so <laughs> I sp- I, I'm told that's not young, especially, you know. But, yeah. Yeah. What's the, well, he's, he's the you same know. age as you. I well, mean, if you ask my 25-year-old son if 40 is young, I think you'll get a, uh, yeah, yeah. a negative answer. <laughs> a fairly... But you know, and he loves their expertise. He loves the way one of them knows his the statutes mm. book and knows crimes and knows how to interpret them, and is a great note taker. He loves all that. But there are a couple of things that come up in the, in, in essentially it's a cold case that's going to be visited. I thought, oh, yeah. Sebastian Barry has has done the Banville on it. He's going to change his name yeah. now and become a crime writer. No, but but it goes. All we share is the first two letters of our names. That's it. <laughs> BA <laughs> but uh, the, 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 one of the things that struck me is you, you talk at one stage that nothing was what it was made out to be this is a quote the truth included the Gardaí the country so there's this kind of perpetual cover up you touched on it in terms of the judiciary earlier on but there was something else that, that June I think it's actually June that says it to Tom they're talking about Fleming Tom's old boss yeah. and he, he's asking loads of questions obviously yeah. The real answers to Fleming's questions existed elsewhere in the great cloud of unknowing where all human stories congregate. Yeah. What, what a place that cloud is. Do, yeah. do you, are you aware of going to that place to look for these stories? Well, I certainly was in this book, and sometimes it made me a bit dizzy to contemplate the nature of where his mind is under all these stresses and pressures. Um, I mean, in the first place, he doesn't notice it, but they've actually taken his toothbrush. See, this is not an entirely cold case. This is actually a current mm. case that they're investigating, but its roots are in the 60s in a case that he, which he has forgotten, was the, was the um, person in charge of it. And there is a scene where he's talking to Fleming, whom he also loves. Uh, his his superior officer. They were once the same rank, you know, that all that. Where Fleming has to tell him that he was the officer in charge, and it's a shock to Tom. And then he remembers. So in this place you refer to, where these um, stories that no one wants to remember go to live and to, to turn with their strange gravities around each other like planets and stars that we all have. He thought he was through with that in the six months, that he'd got through it. And it's partly his respect for his colleagues that allows him to be seduced in a way into trying to help again. But you know, their bona fides, we never quite, no, we do know that they're not absolutely 100% in the way they're talking to him. And there is a very difficult conversation he has to have about the current case, which is a priest they are now trying to prosecute, whom Tom knew of in the 60s as well. Because this is one of the many priests who were let, left to their own devices, in particular by McQuaid, 
but also by the clergy in general. And and you mentioned McQuaid there, and that's one of the big uh, one of the he's one of the big characters. If you're going to write about that period in time, the fifties yeah. and sixties, he's going to have to be he's yeah. going to have to be present in some ways. Yeah. In some ways, you I mean, not in some ways you make a direct comparison. You make a, a statement around empire that this was the same type mm. of empire that when we talk about colonialism and empire, there was a similar type of imp, imp, empirical or empire like uh, uh, action going on. You know, I mean, it's very complicated, isn't it? But um, during the 19th century, when most of the the population in the country had been reduced by colonialism, literally to rags, you know, so much so that it was a de fill, because all the top hats and tails of England were sold into Ireland as second-hand clothes for pennies, all the beggars were wearing them. That's to say, all we were wearing. And de Tocqueville said... that Ireland looked like a nation of distressed waiters. So when you do, when colonialism does that to a people in order to exploit them, um, the only people who had any sort of um, civic status were the priests. And it wasn't so much, and the only people you could say were derived from the people to some degree, although that's debatable too. But it wasn't so much to lift them out of their chaos, because there was a great, enormous acceptance of the nature of Ireland as if it was a problem that could never be solved, both in British governments and in Ireland. Mm. That, that you couldn't, but you could somehow harvest or, or, or use this um, distressed people to create a better form of religion, in this case, Catholicism. That you could somehow... Um, rule over that in an almost unseen way because on the upper tiers of society they weren't concerned with those things at all. So when you get into the 20th century, our century, after independence, there was that relationship between the priests and the people, but something radical was happening to the people. The priests were actually remaining more or less the same in their attitudes. This was a group of people we must herd into into goodness and blessedness and, uh, you know, uh, people that obviously were like those um, children's dolls with nothing between their legs, you know. They're obviously sexless people. We'll turn them into that. But the people were becoming... Were, 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 were Ken and Barbie, I'm thinking of. Why am I thinking of that? But anyway, <laughs> they, were, they were coming out of it and people were being educated. The country, even though... Dev made every effort in a way to keep us down with the economic war and the rest of it. Something was rising up. But it, it was as if the priests were content to continue the processes of the 19th century and to keep us in their charge. I mean, there is no law for this. There's no statute. There's no judiciary to, to rule over this. But we became the creatures of the priests. I, I noticed this even as a little boy when I came back from London and went in, into school with the priests, that instantly there was this... Do you know, and I must say, I suppose I am anti-clerical, but I am an enormous fan of men in dresses, as you may have noticed from Days Without End, but possibly not in this instance. I mean, men in those frightening black soutans in school, when you're just small, and they're, they are trying to tell you how to be. They're trying to tell you 
simple things that we know are catastrophic and wrong to say to children. I mean, I'm even talking about, do you know, intimate things like masturbation is wrong, and all these things. They terrorized us about our own bodies, you might say. And at the same time, there's a percentage of priests, maybe also as a result in some way I can't quite work out of the 19th century, preying on children. So we, we lived in this world where this body, let's just concentrate, if we may, on the priesthood, who are both trying to tell us about our sexuality and some of them also assaulting our sexuality. So for me as a human being, a human person alive in this time, the son of um, do you know, a young gay man and myself, even now when I hear the current Archbishop of Armagh saying, saying in that strange tone they use when they're about to say something catastrophic, that to be gay is not a sin, but homosexual acts are a sin. And I, you know, God forgive me, if I had any control over Irish society, which luckily for Irish society I don't, I would forbid any priest ever again to say anything about our human sexuality in public, ever. That would be my rule. I'm looking at the clock. I'm going to have to take another break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with you in a couple of minutes' time, live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. And welcome back to the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. We're live with Sebastian Barry in a public interview about his new novel, Old God's Time. Derry Farrell has made his way back onto the stage. We're going to hear a song in history, Sebastian, this time. <laughs> Young Emmett. Young Emmett from Derry Farrell, one of the tracks on his new album, The Wedding Above in Gangtry. Uh, the, the new album released this Friday. It's Thursday, Derry will be at the Spirit Store in Dundalk. Series of gigs around the country throughout February and May. Derry.com, D-A-O-R-I.com for full details there. And there's an awful f- uh, short period of time when you have Sebastian Barry sitting in front of you. We're touching on Emmett there and we're into the world of history, which is obviously well, another Smith, thing. Smith and the steward of Christendom is trying to hold yet another Thomas responsible uh, for Emmett's death, you know, which is yeah. sort of well, funny one of the parlour games we play yeah, yeah, in the funny. back room of Irish history. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny how you bring up the Stuart of Christendom because I didn't want tonight to pass without mentioning it in some ways. I was watching um, your, your lectures as part of your period as the, as the Irish, the Laureate for Irish Fiction. Yeah. You, your second of those lectures, you speak about Donald McCann and yeah. that amazing performance as Thomas Dunn in, yeah. in the Stuart of Christendom. Um, there's a point where you, you talk about uh, McCann saying to you, I think it was in the prep- preparatory period for that, mm-hmm. for that play, that he said to you, oh, I don't need to have any opinion on Thomas Dunn. I just need to become him. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing yeah. there, but it's words to that effect. Yeah. What's that process for the writer? I'm thinking of all of your, play, all of your books, but you know, we know who you, what you think about some of the characters in here, what mm-hmm. opinion you have mm-hmm. on them. 
but in old gods time do you have an opinion on the character do you have to go to some other place like the actor goes to being mm. that the person well i i you know years ago i mean if i was anything i was uh, you know one of nature's labor voters um labor's had an odd history in this country because larkin of course was a pacifist which was not the popular thing to be and maybe that's why labor has never really flourished properly here but i i have more or less divested myself of any sense of politics because especially as you get a little older you realize that anything that's not refracted through love isn't really not worth spending all your time concentrating on you know even trying to get to that prismatic color that only exists because it's moved through this strange redeeming thing and we're going to talk about redemption is it's the good thing about us um just recently you know a very close colleague lost a child and we were at the funeral and the, the most amazing her husband spoke about the child and he spoke you know more eloquently than I than I could ever speak about anything and yet i had attempted something not unrelated in thomas to talk about the loss of a child and it was a humbling moment for me because I, you know sometimes you do think you might be you know good at what you do or something because obviously they haven't seen you off the premises completely yet although they have tried occasion uh, but you know you realize that actually the, the truth of the matter the solid the, the real truth i mean the the truth of love and human affairs exists in us all we are all the repositories of important information and under great stress these things become manifest and visible so that particular instance was incredibly i mean it was very sad and overwhelming but it was also i mean if there were gods looking down you know they would be somehow justified in whatever efforts they'd made towards us. It was a very beautiful thing. So that's what, if I'm going to talk about Tom Kettle, I, you know, I'm not interested in his supposed crimes. or you know, the, His colleagues are interested in his possible complicity in something. But I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what his mind does in the face of enormous stress and... Do you know, if, 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 if he were a meadow, Thomas, there are times, like those spring moments on the island of Paros or in those Mediterranean countries that are baked dry most of the year, when the whole place is covered in wildflowers. And that was what I was hoping and praying, that I would be witness to that with Thomas. And I think I was. As I said, why have I called so many people Tom or Thomas? The same thing. That's very curious. Exactly the same thing, Thomas McNulty. I did have a very lovely close friend called Thomas. I suppose I fancy the name. <laughs> Sebastian, it's been, it's been a joy as, as always. My thanks to all here at the pavilion. Can we and thank this beautiful audience? Yes, we can. We can Is thank them. <laughs> really from my home place but also it's almost the first time it is the first time I've spoken in public about some of these things and I was in fear in some ways and and worried but you by the grace of your presence you gave me strength and I want to thank you sincerely for that
I'll add my own thanks to that and to everybody here at the Pavilion, uh, Declan Heaney and Declan Burke, uh, for his research and uh, preparation for this evening's event. Derry Farrell and the, the wonderful performances from Robbie and Mark, Robbie Walsh and, and Mark. New album, as I say, is called The Wedding Above in Glen Cree. The broadcast coordinator for RTE tonight was Michelle Gibson on sound. Here in the pavilion, Tom Norton and Jimmy Doyle. Uh, Jimmy Doyle back in Studio 7, Mark McGrath. And tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Old God's Time is published by Faber and Faber. And Sebastian Barry, Family Stories, a new documentary directed by Charlie McCarthy, will be aired on Monday the 20th of March, uh, half past nine, on RT1 television. And Sebastian Barry will be appearing at this year's Kirch International Festival of Literature, which takes place from April the 18th to the 23rd. My final thanks goes to Sebastian Barry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.